Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. This series has been a long time in the coming. We are, in case you didn't catch it, we're doing a series for the next three weeks on suffering. Correct response. Um, so John Udy told me that I should talk for two hours so it could be like an experiential talk. It really would be painful. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to speak for much less than that just while I get myself organized. Uh, so about six months ago, I was doing my first uni subject for my master's in theology. And we were doing like, it was like an overview subject. Just so each week was a different key theological topic. So, uh, you know, first week, Trinity. Second week, Jesus. Third week, salvation. Just going and going through the key elements of Christian theology. And I was really curious when I noticed on the course outline that there was a whole week devoted to the topic of suffering. And I have to admit, at this point, I think up, up to this point in my Christian journey, I'd kind of taken the topic of suffering and put it up on the shelf and it was a kind of a subconscious thing, but I think the reason I did that was because I was kind of afraid that if I call my faith into question, or that I might, um, you know, suddenly find an unanswerable question that, that throws everything out the window that I knew about God. And I don't, I don't think I held that view consciously, but I think I'd kind of just put it in the too hard basket, and it was actually much easier to keep it in the too hard basket and not to bring it out. But much to my surprise, uh, I had an experience that I've never had before, which is that I got to the end of the lecture and I was actually in tears. Has anyone else ever cried during a lecture? <laughs> but not for that reason. That's okay. But I got. But the reason I was crying is not because of you know my faith was over, because I in actually being willing to explore this topic and bring these questions honestly before God, I discovered that God is actually more good and more loving and more incredible and more beautiful than I possibly could have imagined. And the trick is, I think, when we bring these really difficult, tricky... What's that? There's some tape on the ground. Uh, when we bring these really difficult, tricky questions before God, we need to be able to... We need to be willing to let Him answer on His terms, not ours. And when we do that, we discover that God isn't actually afraid of our big questions. That God is actually bigger than our big questions. And there's no question that we can bring to God that he hasn't heard before. And so I got to the end of the lecture and I said, we've got to talk about this in church. And so here we are. I, so what we're doing, so there's, there's three talks in this short series. Uh, this week we are talking about a theology of suffering. So we're doing, I, I emphasize a brief theological overview of the, the topic <laughs> Uh, the topic of suffering. Uh, then next week, we're going to get a little bit more practical. Uh, Lucy Weil is going to talk to us about holding on to hope during suffering, which is correct response. It's going to be amazing. And then finally, uh, Kath Udy has taken on the daunting project of talking to us about how to walk with others through suffering. So we're going to be a little bit more theological this week and a little bit more practical for the next two weeks. Now, before we start on tonight's message, I just want to lay out a couple of expectations 
uh, before we start. And the first one is that I realize that coming into this talk that we are going to have a room full of people with totally different experiences on this topic. We will have people who are sitting here in this room who are fascinated by the topic of pain and suffering, and from an intellectual perspective, cannot wait to get their teeth into what we're going to share tonight. On the complete other end of the spectrum, I know that there are people who are here tonight uh, where we talk about suffering, and for them, that's their current life experience. And we probably have a lot of people who fit somewhere in the middle. Uh, suffering is an experience that is common to all of us as humans. It's part of the human experience. Uh, so considering that we're going to have a whole range of different people, I uh, just ask that you guys have grace for me for the fact that I can't perfectly address everyone's situation, although I'll try. Uh, the second thing I need to say is that this is a massive topic. So I actually went on uh, for that subject. I ended up writing my major essay for that subject on the topic of suffering. Uh, and I've actually provided a link at the end in case you feel like reading it. Uh, but I won't be upset if no one does. But there's a tracker on it, so I'll know. Uh, yes, uh, moving swiftly on. Um, but it's a massive topic. And so, uh, firstly, I'm, I'm certainly not going to cover everything there is on a theology of suffering. And secondly, there is a large amount of nuance that is required when we talk about this. So please forgive me when I don't get all of the nuance every time. Although, like I said, I will try. Uh, I'll actually have a slide at the end, uh, which will have a list of different resources that you can go to if any of the things that I mentioned uh, fascinate you. Uh, there's some really, really good readings and resources out there. Uh, the final thing I need to say is that if you are hoping tonight um, to get some answers, then you will be disappointed. Because uh, this is one of those topics where we kind of brush up against the edge of our ability to perceive and understand the ways of the Lord. And so I'll kind of give away the ending now, which is that sometimes in this Christian journey, uh, we need to be satisfied with not being satisfied. We need to realize that there are some questions that don't have answers on this side of heaven. And what we need to learn to do is we need to walk with God despite that fact. So are you ready? Four people are ready. For the rest of you, you have no choice but to listen. So the first thing we want to do is if we're talking about uh, suffering, if we're talking about the problem of pain, the problem of evil, I'm going to use those kind of terms interchangeably here. The first thing we need to do is we need to adequately define the problem that we're trying to solve. What is the question we're actually trying to answer? Now, there are a bunch of different ways to define the problem, but probably the best one, and the one that when you read through a lot of the literature on this topic that a lot of people use, is a definition that was put forward by C.S. Lewis uh, almost 100 years ago. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Problem of Pain, from which we have stolen this series' title, says, If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. So put another way, we all would acknowledge that there is evil in the world and that suffering exists. Therefore, that challenges either God's goodness or his sovereignty, sovereignty, his all-powerfulness. So what do we do with that? Now, I said that this definition was put forward close to 100 years ago. Uh, understandably, a lot of people have attempted to solve this problem. And if you do some reading, you will come across hundreds, if not thousands, of different answers of people attempting to solve this problem. 
I'm going to present probably the two most famous and the two most popular ones. Uh, and the first one is what's known as, in the literature, as soul-making theory. Soul-making theory uh, says that uh, God will permit evil um, if there is a higher purpose or there is a greater long-term gain. So basically, if I look back on my life, I have, ex- have experienced suffering, I've ex- experienced times of pain, but I, and I wouldn't choose to go through them again. But I can recognize that because of his goodness, God has used those times to actually grow me into the kind of person that I am today. And so soul-making theory basically says um, the, the end justifies the means. Now, that's an incredibly practical approach to solving the problem of pain. I think for many of us, if we look back on our lives, you'll see that that's inherently true. That God, in his goodness, has the ability to bring uh, wonderful things out of the darkest situations, and that's just who he is. But one of the problems with this theory is that it has absolutely nothing to say to the worst kinds of suffering. If you think about genocide, soul-making theory has nothing to say. And if you think about death itself, it has nothing to say, or it has very little to say. And so what else have we got? The, uh, the next theory that I want to bring to you is one called uh, the free will defense. Now, the free will defense says that, I realize it might have been happy to, uh, helpful to have slides for these, but uh, the free will defense effectively says that when God created the world, he created humanity in the image of God, and a really important part of that image is the ability to make choices, to make decisions. And we see evidence of this in the fact that Adam and Eve uh, chose to disobey God, so they chose to go against his rule. And what, uh, what the free will defense says, that the priority of having free will and God maintaining the free will that he gave to us is so high that he would choose to allow evil to enter the world via people's bad decisions in order that he doesn't undermine his own created order. Now, that makes a lot of log- logical sense, doesn't it? And the thing that I think this theory does really well is it addresses, it addresses the actual reality of the way that God operates in his creation, doesn't it? But the problem is, uh, and where we run into trouble with this theory, is that philosophers tend to divide suffering into two categories, or evil into two categories. On one hand, you have moral evil, and that's the kind that we've talked about here. That's evil that has human origin. The bad decisions that we make, the times that we see evil and we choose not to do anything about it, The evil that results from human activity is moral evil. But on the other hand, you have natural evil. And this free will defense has nothing to say to natural evil. Natural evil includes things like natural disasters. Natural evil covers sickness. And natural evil covers death. Things that uh, don't have evil and suffering in the world that doesn't have any human origins. So, if we have, so I've just presented to you effectively what are probably the two strongest theories that we have. And where we land is to realize that there is actually no uh, philosophical explanation of evil that satisfactorily covers every situation. 
And so perhaps uh, what some people have said more recently is that maybe the problem is not so much with our ability to come up with solutions, maybe the problem is actually with the question and the way we define the problem in the first place. Uh, I would suggest to you, first of all, that we need to think very carefully about how we define God's goodness. So a simple statement like, if God is good, what does good really mean in that situation? And I want to suggest to us that if we try and judge or characterize God's goodness based on human standards, then we're going to come short every time. I think trying to conceive the mind of an infinite being when you only have finite resources, it's kind of like trying to measure the circumference of the earth using a 30-centimeter ruler. You might argue, well, it's accurate. I mean, it's 30 centimeters, like it's right. But you've got a tool that doesn't have the ability to cope with the, the complexity and the scope of the problem that we're trying to address. And so one of the problems is that, you know, I think, honestly, we really struggle um, we're always going to struggle to truly understand God's goodness and His greatness. The second thing is, I think sometimes when we think about God's sovereignty, particularly in relation to this problem, we get ourselves into trouble. Uh, I want to suggest to you that God is not a micromanager. When we look at the way that God operates in our lives in almost any other uh, sphere, we don't make this assumption that God is micromanaging every single little uh, bit of minutiae in creation. But then why do we assume in this argument that he is? You know, it's one thing to say that God has all authority, and I think that's absolutely true. God has all authority. But there are times when he chooses to exercise that authority, and there are times when he doesn't. And I'm suggesting to us tonight that we can't always know the reasons why God chooses to do what he does. We just simply can't. Now, if you are interested in this kind of discussion about God's goodness and God's sovereignty, uh, I want to point you to a resource, which is Putty Putman's latest book. While this isn't the central point of his book, he actually has a really good discussion about this. Uh, it's called Kingdom Impact. Uh, download it from uh, iBooks or, or Amazon or, or buy it somehow, but have a read, Kingdom Impact. It deals with this topic really well. Uh, but the crux of it is that uh, this, this creation project that God has, it's, it's not this divine blueprint. It's not this kind of set of plans that he's going to carry out exactly until uh, Jesus returns. That actually this creation project is this ongoing, creative, beautiful act of God weaving together um, this dream that he has um, that I'm going to let you read the book if you want to go more into that, because it's, it's, he puts it a lot better than I could. Now, at this point, I wonder if you notice what's missing. And I hope some of you are beginning to wonder when I'm going to actually mention the Bible. Now, that's somewhat intentional. I did, I did have to intentionally skirt around a couple of times. I kind of mentioned creation, but uh, let's just let's leave that one. So one of the problems that we often get into when we talk about this kind of thing uh, is that it's really easy to get sucked into a debate about philosophy. But I think when we're trying to answer theological questions with philosophical reasoning, we're often going to struggle, aren't we? And if you, if you ask the question, well, what does 
uh, what does Scripture have to say about this problem, you'll realize that the, the authors of Scripture wrestle with this question a lot. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, which you might not often read, begins with these words. He says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It's a strong opening. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find this kind of wrestle all over the place. Psalm 44 says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. They're not afraid to ask the hard questions in Scripture. But if you're looking for some dialogue on suffering, probably the best place to look in all the Scripture is in the book of Job. Now, I don't have time to to summarize uh, or to, to go through the whole book with you. But the short story is, Job is a man who loses everything. His health his family, his wealth, all his material possessions. And he spends 38 chapters of the Old Testament wrestling with God and wrestling with his friends and effectively asking this question, why? Why would you allow this to happen to me, Lord? And if you ever find yourself in this place, I want to encourage you that the book of Job is a great place to wrestle with these questions with the Lord. But after 38 chapters of God's silence in response to Job's questions. The way that he responds is incredible. He says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Job says, why are you letting this happen to me? How could you let me suffer? And God's answer is uh, spectacularly annoying, but incredibly, incredibly profound. Rather than answer the question, he says, where were you when I made the world? Where were you? How could you understand my mind? And then later on in in chapter 40, God says... uh, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? You know, I think when we look to the scriptures, we will really struggle to find any... In fact, I'm not sure if there's a single verse in scripture that attempts to justify the actions of God. What you do find is a lot of information about what God is doing about injustice. The Bible is not so much fascinated with why God would allow bad things to happen, but the Bible is absolutely fixated on God's plan to end suffering. And you know, when I think we, when we, when we take this view of Scripture, when we change the question that we're asking from why God to what God, what are you doing? In this situation, this whole new framework opens up to be able to explore this question of injustice, to explore the question of suffering. And so we're going to spend the rest of this evening 
asking that question instead. What is God doing about suffering? Now, to answer that question very quickly, we're actually going to go to the last page. We're going to cheat. So if you've got a Bible handy, why don't you open up Revelation 21? We're going to read from verses uh, 1 to 5. So we're effectively skipping to the end of the Bible and saying, okay, well, what, what's God's plan for all of this? Where's God taking us? So Revelation 21, 1 to 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be uh, be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away away. So this is Scripture's endgame for the problem of pain. The problem disappears because God gets rid of it. And so when we look at the trajectory of this story that we're a part of, we realize that God's plans are good, that in the new creation, suffering no longer exists. So that's where we're headed. But I wonder if you notice, I've, I literally had not noticed this, this, this. I've read this verse a million times, but I never noticed this. It says, uh, I think in verse 2, uh, there was no longer any sea. Isn't that like a random comment to drop into this piece of scripture? Now, I, Jen and I just got back from uh, a week in Hawaii, which was amazing. And I'll tell you what, I actually, I quite like the beach. And so I, I kind of, the first time I read this, I was like, oh, I wonder if that means there'll be no beaches in heaven. Uh, but thankfully, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exegete us out of that concern. Um, I, think that, I think the reason that the, the author of Revelation says there's no longer going to be any sea is not because there's no beaches in heaven, uh, but because uh, the sea, it turns out, is this really interesting metaphor. Uh, it's not one of the big ones, but it's this interesting metaphor that's used the whole way throughout the scriptures to represent disorder, chaos, and evil. So if you think about it, Genesis 1, the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. He, I don't think the Spirit of God, before creating all things, was literally hovering over water. It's this concept that there was chaos and disorder, and out of that, God brought forth his creation. If you think back to the Gospels, uh, and Jesus calming the wind and the waves... He's out on, Jesus is out on this boat with his disciples and there's this crazy storm going on. They all think they're going to die. Uh, And Jesus, he speaks to the wind of the waves and instantly they die down and the water is still. Now we typically interpret that as thinking that Jesus is dealing with, he's exerting his authority over nature itself. And he is doing that. But symbolically, I think it means something extra for the disciples who are on that boat. It's his authority over chaos, disorder, and evil itself. And so... When we turn to the book of Exodus, we find that God actually is super attentive 
to the needs and the suffering of his people. Exodus 3, uh, the Israelite people are basically a slave nation, enslaved by Egypt. And God says this. He said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God has seen the suffering of his people. He has heard their cry, and he said, I have come down, and I'm going to do something about this. And so what God does is fascinating. There's uh, a fair bit of story. There's some plagues and stuff. And then eventually, we did a series on Exodus at the beginning of the year. You can get the whole story there. But, uh, but God leads the Israelite people out of Egypt. And then they find themselves in this fascinating situation where they are standing on the edge of the sea, which represents evil and chaos and disorder. They've got the, the uh, Egyptians coming to kill them. So effectively, what you have is you have natural evil, you have moral evil coming at each other. And so God creates a way through the sea, creates a way through natural evil. They walk through on dry ground. And then when the, the, the Egyptians, when moral evil comes in, he uses natural evil to destroy them. He uses evil to distinguish its, extinguish itself. Isn't that cool? You know, this isn't, it turns out, this isn't the only time in the scriptures that God listens to the cry of his people. That God sees that his people are enslaved and decides that he needs to make a way out for them. You see, I think as incredible as this Exodus story is, I think it's a shadow, it's a foretaste of what's coming. It's an, an allegory that helps all of us to understand what Jesus did when he died on the cross and when he rose again. You see, God has, has seen the suffering of his people. He's seen the suffering that is part of the human condition that all of us experience. He said, I have come down to save my people from slavery, slavery to sin. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes natural evil, the worst that it can throw at him, death itself, and moral evil, uh, the people who unjustly sent their own God to be murdered. And Jesus, it's like Jesus is standing in the middle, and natural evil's here, and, and moral evil's here, and they come crashing down on one another and extinguish their own powers. And out of the mess, Jesus rises again. He establishes a new world order, a new kingdom, where suffering and pain no longer have the final word. You see, I think if we want to build a theology of suffering, if we want to understand what, what God is doing about suffering and why he would allow it, I think the central piece of scripture that we have to take is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when we look at suffering through this lens, a number of 
incredible revelations present themselves. And the first one is when we take the, the death and resurrection of Jesus as the beginning, uh, the instantiation of God's kingdom. And when we take Revelation 21, which we've just uh, read as the consummation of God's king, I'm just throwing in some theology words for you nerds. Uh, when when you, you take these two events, what we discover is that we live in this time that in the vineyard we like to call the now and the not yet. And when we're approaching this topic of suffering, the now and the not yet is such a helpful, such a useful framework to describe and to understand our everyday experience. There are moments when we see God's kingdom come clearly. Someone will get miraculously healed when we pray for them. Or someone, uh, through, through the God's grace expressed through medicine, will get healed of cancer. Or someone will be going through uh, the darkest of depression, and through God's love expressed in community, they'll come out the other side of that journey safely. You know, these are these now moments where we see God's kingdom breaking in, and this future reality, we get a foretaste of this reality that's coming. And, we get, and, and they're not... They're not meant to be just celebrated on their own, but they point us to what God's ultimate reality for us is. And then we have the moments where we don't, where we don't see what God's doing, where we're left questioning, where we're left asking these questions, why God? And sometimes we don't get the answers, but what we do have in every situation is God's presence. What we do have is his promise. What we do have is the saving power of Jesus on the cross and the new life that he brings us into through our resurrection. So the first thing that the cross shows us is this now and not yet reality in which we live, and it helps us to interpret our everyday experience. The second thing it does... It shows us uh, that the whole story of Scripture is God's answer to the problem of evil. You see, at the start of this talk, we were kind of wrestling through this philosophical question. How could a good God allow evil? You know, if, God, if, if evil was part of God's plan, if he wanted evil to shape us, to, to do soul-making or whatever, why would he throw his most valuable resource? Why would he give the thing in the universe that is most precious to him, his own son, to help alleviate the problem of evil? And so we realize that the whole story of Scripture is this gradual revelation of God's plan to end suffering once and for all. And that's just incredible. Uh, but finally, and possibly most helpfully, I think sometimes when we, when we reason about evil, when we're trying to figure out this whole suffering question, we kind of paint God as this, this master puppeteer in the sky who's kind of pulling the strings and kind of watching what happens to us below. And whether we think that consciously or not, I think sometimes reasoning about the problem of evil puts us into that mindset. But what the cross shows us is that Jesus isn't up there pulling the strings. When we are walking through our hardest moments, through the dark night of the soul, Jesus is here beside us. Our Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be human. He is no stranger to any of this. And so when we, when we enter the hardest moments of our lives, when we have to walk through the, sh- the valley of death, we know that Jesus is standing beside us because he's been through it before. He knows what it's like. 
He know, he, he's no stranger to evil. He knows how to stand beside us. And so I want to suggest that our theology of suffering should be based not so much uh, in the best theories that try to explain away uh, the problem of evil. They shouldn't be uh, based in our conceptualizations of free will um, or our, our limited ability to understand what God's goodness really means. I think that our theology of suffering needs to be ultimately rooted in the cross and the person of Jesus. That we need to realize that we have a God who since the beginning has been actively working to stamp out evil in our midst. But I think it would be very remiss of me uh, not to, to, to finish there and not to mention the fact that this theology of suffering, uh, as much as it helps us to reason about our experiences and our reality, actually calls us into action. Because we have been called to be Christ's disciples. We have been called to continue this kingdom project that Jesus told his disciples about and then inaugurated on the cross and through his resurrection. And so actually, if we really understand the theology of suffering, then we realize that God is giving us this incredible call to partner with him as he is actively working to undo the powers of darkness that are in work, at work in our midst. It calls us to, to step forward and say yes to Jesus. That when we see people suffering, we're not going to walk on by. But we're going to be like the Good Samaritan and stop and help. And say, are you okay? Can I help you in this situation? This, the, when, when, we, when we look at the topic of suffering through the lens of the cross, we realize that actually God has given us this incredible gift of his spirit to be able to bring this kingdom reality, this reality that we, we read about in Revelation 21, to try and bring that into our present day experience, to try and bring that to the people around us.